Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. David Williamson is Australia's best known and most widely performed playwright. He was the first person outside Britain to receive the George Devine Award for The Removalists, and the awards kept coming. They include 12 Augie Awards, five Australian Film Institute Awards for Best Screenplay, and in 1996, the United Nations Association of Australian Media Peace Award. In 2005, he was given the Richard Lane Award for services to the Australian Writers Guild. David has also received four honorary doctorates and been made an officer of the Order of Australia. His prodigious output for the stage includes The Department, Don's Party, The Club, Travelling North, Emerald City, Brilliant Lies, Dead White Males, and the classic that we're here to talk about today, The Removalists. A young policeman's first day on duty becomes a violent and highly charged initiation into law enforcement. Remarkable for its blend of boisterous humour and horrifying violence, The Removalists has acquired a reputation as a classic statement on Australian authoritarianism. David, this is a play that's been analysed by so many people and from so many different angles. So I'd like to start by asking you to tell me, in essence, what you think the play is about. I once wrote a piece on the fact that this play is um, is tragic because the limitations, personality-wise and attitude-wise, of three males are brought sharply into focus in one incident. The personality abnormalities of Simmons, the insecurities of Ross, and the ferocious belligerence of Kenny Carter. When you put those characters together, it's a recipe waiting to explode. So I suppose at its base, it was an essay about the dangers of the dark side of human nature. Wrong place, wrong time, tragedy. Tell me about the research that you did before writing The Removalists. I have a family full of policemen. My grandfather was a policeman. My uncle was a policeman. My cousin was a policeman. So I got plenty of exposure to police attitudes as I was growing up. Um, My uncle often used to talk about police life, and I must have gained (laughs) a bit from him because he seemed to be very proud of the fact that He'd never had an arrest in all his years in the force, and if you had to make an arrest, there was something wrong with your modus operandi, and um, he never shot a gun. And uh, Basically, he wasn't a Sergeant Simmons. Sergeant Simmons is a malignant personality. My uncle Cole was not malignant, but he was very socially conservative, politically conservative. Uh, he, he was an admirable uncle in, in many ways, but the attitude to... Um, getting through life with with as little disturbance as possible was very deeply embedded Um, and I thought that's that's yeah as against these um, 
Hollywood movies and cops and robbers shows where policemen are always highly active, chasing crims and sh shooting guns, and that, my uncle could think of nothing worse. Um, he just wanted a quiet life without too many stresses. Well, let's talk about the characters then that inhabit this microcosm. I wanted to start with the two policemen, Sergeant Dan Simmons and Constable Neville Ross. In the opening scene, Simmons, who is fat and 50-ish, lounges at a battered old desk and surveys Ross as if he were auditioning him for a crucial role in some play. Simmons is a know-it-all veteran with a rather dubious record, I think, coming from him of, as you were just saying, something you've taken from your uncle, 23 years on the force and he's never made an arrest or drawn a gun. Right. How do you think life in the police force has affected him? Well, he thinks life in the police force is a sinecure. He hasn't been a very good policeman. In fact, um, I think his, uh, his essential uh, laziness was probably recognised um, early on. I thought, oh, look, just put him somewhere where he can't do any harm. Uh, and, and for him to give Simmons his little kingdom was exactly what he wanted. That's all he wanted out of life was to, to reign supreme over his kingdom no matter how small. So how does he feel about the arrival of Constable Ross who's fresh out of police training, full of expectation? Well I think Simmons really welcomes a new kid uh, that he can exercise authority over, beat into submission and tell him the real rules of life in the force as distinct from the rubbish he's been taught in police college. So I think Simmons is absolutely savouring the arrival of this raw young recruit. And the role that he inhabits with Ross really instructs us on his own character. We know he's pretty shifty, dodgy, underhanded. He says, the money's not good, Ross. The money could be good if you happen to be in the right places, but this isn't one of them. No payoffs here, boy. A few perks, but no payoffs. Yes, yeah, so he is essentially, he can't be bothered getting into the graft. I mean, getting into the graft is dangerous territory. You have to consort with criminals. You have to sometimes kill criminals. Um, the most corrupt cops were organising crime in Melbourne and Sydney. They weren't catching criminals, they were organising criminals. And this is all too much for Sergeant Dan Simmons. He doesn't want the hard work and the danger of getting into the real graft. It, it, have nothing against the money, but it's just too hard work. But he understands his position very well and how to manipulate the system. He says, The workload around here is very much a matter of how we see things, Ross. Something doesn't have to be very big before it's too big for us. And likewise, something doesn't have to be all that small before it's nothing worth worrying about. Yeah, essentially, he's a petty bureaucrat trying to avoid as much work as uh, as possible and have, a, have an easy life, go home with his his beer and his crayfish and watch the wrestling in front of television. That's his ideal life. Well, let's talk about Constable Ross then. What do we learn about him on his first day? Well, he is naive. He has taken on board the positive attitudes towards policing that have been taught to him in college, by and large. He's actually been looking forward to a career in which he is socially useful. That, um, he will be of benefit to uh, to the community, um, and so he comes up straight away with an indication that this is not going to be the case, which is pretty destroying on his first day. What Simmons doesn't pick up on fully enough, because he's not a very good reader 
of other human beings is just how touchy Ross is and how potentially explosive this touchiness can become. Ross has always probably been taunted at school because his father makes coffins. Um, Ross has never been um, uh, someone of great uh, charisma or social ease, so he's, uh, he's never fully felt um, a place in life, and he thinks the Force is going to supply him with that um, meaning and place and respect, and suddenly he's comes face to face with someone who's telling him that it's a load of rubbish, you, you'll never be socially useful and the best thing he can do is keep his nose out of trouble and avoid work. Because it's not possible to be trained, as he says, for all eventualities in this rapidly changing world. No, that was what they taught him in college, but uh, if, if Sergeant Simmons has his way there won't be too many eventualities that uh, cross their path. Well, halfway through Act 1, Kate Mason and Fiona Carter arrive. They're sisters, very different from one another, though. The stage notes tell us Kate is more expensively dressed and elegant than Fiona, but Fiona has an easy and innocent sexuality. Kate tends to be tense and affected. Fiona is more relaxed and natural. They've arrived to make a report against Fiona's husband, Kenny, for assault and battery, but we quickly learn that they have different motivations for being there. Let's talk about Kate first. What things do we learn about her character early on? Well, Kate is a classic working class girl that's spent her whole life distancing herself from her class background by marrying a dentist and trying to remove all traces of a social past by adopting as refined an accent as she can by putting on her ears and graces. Whereas her younger sister, Fiona, didn't find this uh, as big an imperative in life. She is quite easy with her social class and status and is not as uh, haunted by the fact that she's um, a working class girl as her older sister is. So Kate's motive is to get Fiona out of this marriage with this horribly down market, offensive and embarrassing husband and try and set her on the path to a possible liaison that's um, a bit more reflective of what she thinks um, the family should be about. Her motivations for bringing Fiona to the police station are a bit murky though, aren't they? Because at one point she tells Simmons that my sister's rather upset about the whole business. She didn't say that we are upset about the whole business. And then later on she tells Simmons... She's always been a bit impulsive, and Simmons, in turn, moves closer to Fiona, ogling her, and replies in a lascivious tone that impulsiveness can be a delightful fault at times, Mrs. Mason. Are you a little bit impulsive too? And rather than getting upset, she gets jealous, competitive, that he's paying attention to Fiona. Mm. Further on again, the stage notes read that she gains sexual pleasure from Simmons' lechery, and a carnal conspiracy develops between them. Kate, it seems, is happy for Fiona to be abused, just not by her husband. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kate has always resented her younger sister for being more socially at ease, more sexually attractive, the object of desire of men quite naturally without trying, and any chance she can get to pay back her sister for these natural advantages she'll indulge in. She really isn't acting out of the welfare of her sister. 
Well, let's talk about Fiona then by examining the way she's treated because it's not just Kate who treats her poorly, obviously. She gets bandied about by lots of people that treat her pretty badly throughout. How do Fiona's reactions to all of this bad behaviour reveal her character to us? Well, they reveal her character and they reveal the times. A working-class, attractive girl was just grew up used to the thought that every building site she'd be wolf-whistled and suggestions would be made by the workmen that open sexism, that inappropriate touching, patting uh, and uh, sexual jokes would be part of her life. She's adopted a fairly passive response to this, thinking that the easiest way out of this is just to put up with it and get on with life. But she also loves Kenny despite his huge flaws and shortcomings. She doesn't have a problem with him having access to their daughter Sophie. She tells Simmons that she didn't actually come to have him arrested. She just wanted a report and is only interested in a separation. And you get the sense that she's not terrified of him, but that she actually just doesn't want to cause any more drama in her life. At one point when he says to her that, you know, she's going to go off and have sex with all these men and that's what she's been thinking about the whole time, hasn't she? She says, Jesus Christ, the only thing I'm looking forward to is arrest. Yes. Well, Kenny is a typically highly competitive male, married to a highly attractive female. Uh, He's on his guard all the time against advances by other men, whether they exist or not. Uh, The most frequent cause of domestic violence is men's jealousy. He's no exception. I think that Fiona genuinely does want a separation. She sort of, it's past her limits when he can make love to her passionately and then half an hour later bash her for not putting the rubbish out. Um, That's overstepped even her passive limits. And Simmons and Ross agree to organise a removalist to get all of Fiona's furniture out of the apartment that she's living in and into this new apartment that Kate has organised. And that's when we meet Kenny. They all think that Kenny's going to be out drinking that night, but he doesn't go out drinking. He comes home and Fiona is obviously shocked to see him, afraid too, I would imagine. And he just smiles, saying that unpredictability is part of his charm. Do you think that unpredictable is a good euphemism to describe Kenny? No, I think it's fairly predictable. He's come home for sex. He feels a bit randy and he um, can't be bothered. Uh, He'd rather come home and um, have some sex with his wife. Um, So I don't think he is terribly unpredictable. He has quite violent mood swings. You don't think that's quote-unquote unpredictable? In a sense it is, but there are predictable things that make him unpredictable, (laughs) put it that way. Uh, Any challenge by another male to his masculinity or virility or toughness or any sense that his wife is looking at any other male. A fairly predictable range of stimuli that make him super aggressive. Um, Male competition or female straying are the two main determinants. When Kate arrives at the apartment, also shocked to see that he's there and not out drinking with his mates, he storms past her into the kitchen, grabs a tin of baked beans and a can opener and a packet of sliced bread. Then he opens the can and stuffs the beans and bread into his mouth before washing the food down with generous draughts of beer from the bottle and glaring at Kate. Do you think this juvenile and bestial exhibition is actually a power play that's kind of similar to the way that he reacts with men? Does he kind of see her as 
a domineering force that he reacts against as a form of authority? Yes, yeah, he hates Kate, and the more he can disgust her, the better uh, he feels about it. He does resent the fact that he's looked down on, but he said, well, uh, nothing's going to change that, so I'll play up to it, and uh, really upset her. And finally, of course, we have the removalist, who sums himself up by saying, I've got a pretty simple philosophy. If there's work, I work. And if nobody interferes with me, then I don't interfere with nobody. This sounds quite simple and true if you don't scratch the surface, but in light of what he witnesses over the course of the day, there are great ramifications, I think, of this ethical ambiguity. Well, I think the thing that made me write the play in the first place was that I was shifting house during my first marriage, and um, it was cheaper if I acted as the removalist labourer rather than hiring one of his own. So I shifted all the furniture into the back of his truck and drove with him to the new location. And and he told me the genesis of this story, how he was called on to by the two sisters to shift the furniture, and the husband came home unexpectedly, and the police gave gave him a bit of a whacking. Now they didn't kill him, but um, certainly his his attitude was, oh, this is one of the most interesting afternoons I've had for ages. Life's pretty boring, and then, wow. And he had no, not a scary of condemnation for the cops overstepping their, uh, what they should have been doing. Uh, he thought it was amusing, and he couldn't have cared less. Uh, and it was his attitude of, the cops can do anything they like, because they're cops. Yeah, I thought, that's quintessentially Australian. Uh, the authoritarian sort of acceptance of whatever the cops do is fine and I'm not going to interfere and besides it was was a good afternoon. There's a wonderful parallel between Simmons and the removalists at one point. They get into an argument about which piece of furniture should be packed into the van next and Simmons argues for the armchairs, the removalist argues for the couch and suddenly the removalist explodes. You can do what you like in here mate but once I'm in the back of me truck my word is law, right? I don't want to seem like I'm making an issue of it, mate, but you get a bit fed up with the general public after a while because not many of them realise there's a bit more to it than lugging furniture. And you can imagine Simmons saying exactly the same thing about the law. Yes, yeah. The males love their little domain of authority. Uh, They'd be psychologically lost without some arena in which they can parade themselves as lord and master. The removalist's arena is reduced to the back of his truck, but at least it's an arena and nobody's going to tell him what to do in his little kingdom. Well, let's talk about power, because it's clearly the overarching theme of the play. And there's many different types of power play on show. They range from the tragic to the comic to the absurd, seedy and frightening. One commonality that they all share, though, is that in the course of the play, they're all undermined. Power's not stable. And when thinking about these characters and their trajectories, what else were you wanting to say about power? Well, power is ubiquitous. The need for power is ubiquitous, especially in the male psyche. To Kenny, to the sergeant, and to the removalists, power is all important. If you have to defer to someone, they better have a higher status than you. If anyone of a lower status tries to challenge your power, you erupt. So power is a parameter that's very ever-present in uh, in the male world. 
And it's really interesting the different permutations of power that we have in the play. There's a power of experience. Simmons makes all sorts of finite statements at the beginning of the play when he's talking to Ross, and they often veer towards life advice that a father might give a son. You don't know a bloody thing about life, about the Force, about yourself. You don't even know why you joined up. I've been around on this earth about 30 years longer than you have, Ross, and in that time I've learned a lot of things. But if your pride won't let you accept a little bit of hard-earned knowledge, then fair enough. You can go staggering around for the rest of your life for all I care. Everybody's fool. Yep, um, exactly. His experience gives him the authority, you're right, and the power to tell um, young Ross how to behave. So does the fact that he's a sergeant. Um, uh, and he and Ross is only a constable. But yes, life experience is a is a source of power. Whether that life experience has actually taught the sergeant anything useful or not uh, is beside the point. <laughs> His assumption is that it's taught him something useful. And there's a real butting of heads between Simmons and Kate where his life experience is undermined by her social status. <laughs> and there's a funny moment when he's speaking with her about her husband. And he says, your husband's a dentist. And she says, that's right. Well, I wasn't far out. I had you tabbed as a surgeon's wife. Same money, more prestige. I wouldn't say that. No, I'm afraid people think more of someone who whips out their gallstones and someone who does likewise with their teeth. But further on, he has quite a lot to say to her about how people in responsible positions should behave. And there's this sense that he feels like his power is is being undermined by her actions, which I find quite interesting. Yes, yeah, she has the power of social status, she has the power of being married to a wealthy um, professional, and she pulls that rank on him and he doesn't like it at all, so he has to undermine her by pointing out that she hasn't behaved responsibly towards her husband. She hasn't given the husband the respect he deserves, according to the power hierarchy between male and female. And after their complicity, when they both allowed Fiona to essentially be abused when the photos were being taken of her bruises and they were you know, poking and prodding at her, Kate and Simmons have a, a big argument and she calls him out on it because of that complicity. She says, for all your moralising, you're nothing but a pervert, Sergeant. I know your type. I saw the look on your face when you were fondling Fiona's thigh down at the station. So she's got him pegged. Do you think they have each other pegged? I think she's got him more pegged than he has uh, He has her. He tries his moralistic thing about how could a responsible wife cheat on her husband and then she returns to remind him of his lechery, which she didn't acknowledge at the time. In fact, she was complicit in it, but she can now use it as a weapon. I think um, that finally the sergeant is defeated in the power game with... Kate, which makes him e- e- even more livid and dangerous for the rest of the play. He's still smarting over that. And then there's the institutional power as well, which starts off on one side with Simmons making it clear to Kenny that he has no power, no hope, no way out. I'd keep quiet from now on if I were you, Carter. I could get you for assaulting an officer of the law, and you know what that would mean. If you go up for assaulting an officer, then Mrs. Carter would have you barred from your kid. Bullshit, says Kenny. It's not bullshit, Carter. Your wife could get a court order as easy as snapping her fingers. Undesirable influence. You think I'm a bloody fool, don't you, says Kenny. I'm going straight to a doctor to get a certificate about me bruises. And Simmons says, you'd be wasting your money. 
I haven't left a bruise in 23 years. Yeah, well, that part is true too, that uh, when police tended to be verbaling people, they did it in such a way with uh, telephone books whacking their heads or uh, punching a telephone book rather than punching the bare flesh. So they had techniques of not losing, uh, leaving a bruise, but um, Simmons also knows that the magistrates are very loath to find against them in a situation mm. like that, which is an institutional source of power. A policeman has to go way over the top before uh, his conduct will be called by your average magistrate. And then on the flip side of this institutional power that he knows that he has, when Kenny realises that power has shifted his way because of what Ross and Simmons have done to him, Simmons shows him that institutional power stretches well beyond the rule book. He tells Kenny that in exchange for his silence, he can arrange a visit with a call girl twice a week. You must be pretty worried to make this sort of an offer, copper. And Simmons says, I don't like a big stir, Carter. That's all. Yeah, Simmons is, is, is nothing if not a realist. If he realises the uh, the scales of uh, the balance of power has swung against him, he can be accommodating in order to get himself out of uh, trouble. But there was an inevitability about the violence that was going to erupt as well, wasn't there? All of that power, in a sense, means very, very little when you're talking about three men on the edge. Yes, both Kenny and the sergeant didn't pay enough attention to the signals of insecurity and explosiveness of Constable Ross. They should have picked that up. They didn't, and the consequences are some fairly horrific violence. The final moment when Ross forces Simmons into a fight, so it looks like Kenny beat them both up, which will give them an excuse for having beaten and killed him in turn. It's a classic example of how satire skirts along the edges of unpalatable truths. And in his introduction to the play, Ian Turner says that it has three questions at its core, which I'd like to ask of you now. Do the forces of law and order, do you think, rest on violence? Ultimately, yes. When authority fails, as it does sometimes in tense situations, that power of violence has to be available to them, or they feel it has to be available them to control the situation, hence the guns on hips, the truncheons, the capsicum sprays, the instruments of power which are instruments of violence are uh, a necessary backup to their authority. Do you think that in essence Australian society is violent? There's a potential undertone of violence in any, any society on earth. I don't think any society can claim that the potential for violence is not there because the potential for violence is deep-seated in human nature and it's not going to go away. Do you think that the Australian crucible has a particular potency inside of it? I think that particularly in the era I wrote the play, the competitive masculinity in the sense I'm tougher than you are always uh, was a a bedrock condition uh, for violence that could erupt. Violence is ever-present, particularly in the male world, and I think the fact that there are nine or ten times as many violent male criminals as female ones uh, says that there is an underlying maleness 
to competitive violence that's never going to go away. And I wonder if you think that all of us, very deep within perhaps, have aggressive instincts or behavioural patterns. Absolutely. Our competitive instincts uh, were hardwired in in our evolutionary uh, ascent many, many millions of years ago um, in our primate ancestors. They're there on obvious display and we haven't lost them. Human survival depended on an emotional system which rose to challenge and one of the ways that it rose to challenge was violence. It's never going to be eradicated. Is there any way of mitigating it or managing it that you don't think is done often enough? Good societies with good social norms control it better than others. If the psychological norms and sanctions are powerful enough, if you can engender a sense of shame and guilt for bad behaviour by making it a very strong social norm, then the tendency to um, display overt violence will be muted. And I think the Scandinavian societies, are, uh, I've just been to Norway, and the rates of violence there are, are low, except some mad gunman killing um, mm-hmm. a, uh, 85 people. So even in a society which really does a very good job at at social norms that do not promote violence, you suddenly get a, um, a guy mm. picking up a gun and killing 85 people. So no, to think that any society is going to be able to wish it away is wishful thinking. David, thank you for talking to me about the removalists. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press, with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.